1: We all know that we make sense of the world through sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. How we reason and remember is also crucial to the way we see things.
0: But there's something in a way that's even more vital to making sense out of all that flood of information that comes into our brains, and that's framing.
1: Why framing is fundamental. Kenneth Cuquier and Francis de Vericourt. If we do not trust our own abilities
2: to be a framer, we will not last long on this earth because our challenges are so immense. If we try to give it up to the machine, the machine can't do these things. We can.
1: Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it?
0: We face a lot of big issues, Richard, pandemics, the rise of kind of scary populism, AI, groups like ISIS, climate change, a belligerent China. Some of these threaten our very existence, but how we see them affects how we respond. And and it often really shapes the options that we even consider for dealing with them.
1: Let's find out how with the authors of a brand new book called Framers, Human Advantage in an Age of Technology and Turmoil.
0: We're joined by Kenneth Couquier, who's in London. He's a senior editor at The Economist.
1: And Francis de Vericourt, professor of management science at the European School of Management and Technology. Francis joins us from Berlin.
0: Victor Mayer Schoenberger, the third author of the book, couldn't join us, which is good because our podcast platform can't handle that many people, and I'm not sure our brains can either. But we're happy to have the two of you. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Ken, let's start with you. Can you define framing for us? Well, a
2: frame is a mental model. A frame is a representation of the world that helps us expose and focus on certain things at the expense of and excluding other things. You can think of it exactly like a frame when you take a picture and you frame one part of the image as opposed to the whole image. If we didn't have a frame or a mental model, we would just be exposed to a avalanche of sensations and stimuli and experiences, but the frame allows us to make it comprehensible and understandable and allows us to act in it as well. So it makes the world
1: actionable. Let's take an example of how framing can change the world. In 2017, after sex abuse allegations against Harvey Weinstein became widely known, the actress Alyssa Milano tweeted a request to her followers. If you have been sexually harassed or assaulted, she wrote, "Write me too" as a reply. The response to that tweet was overwhelming and put the phrase "me too" into common usage. You share that story, Kenneth. Now, what Alyssa
2: Milano had done, as by sending out her tweet on an f- infamous evening, uh, and everyone saying "me too," is it took the issue of sexual assault or sex- and sexual harassment from something that was a mark of shame and was therefore held in silence to something that could be empowering and one could find strength and strength in numbers with a cohort of others by exposing it, by actually going public with it. And they were going public simply to say Me Too, or they could even name a person as well. But either way, it had taken something that was in the shadows and silence and now is a form of strength.
0: Another example of framing in recent history is how different governments viewed the COVID pandemic. New Zealand, for example, had a very different framing model than the U.S. or much of, uh, of Europe. Uh, Francis, tell us how those frames differed.
3: It's very, very important that at the beginning of an epidemic, you frame the situation well because you don't have much data. You don't have information. Your your only guide is the way you comprehend the situation. And you had, for instance, New Zealand who saw it as something new, something dangerous, even though there were a few cases, and then frame it as, well, we need to close border because they saw it as something new that could explode.
1: So, so with yeah. New Zealand and I think Taiwan and Australia, they closed their borders very quickly, didn't That's they? That's right.
3: That's right.
2: I mean, I think it, it, it's so revealing that the very countries that you cited are ones that share something similar, and that is geography. So what's happening? Since 2014... Whenever you went to an ASEAN meeting, there always was somebody who would be talking about pandemics and surveillance systems and sentinels for health care. The reason why is the SARS crisis that hit Hong Kong and other parts of Southeast Asia and, and East Asia. So they were all so primed. Even places like New Zealand and Australia that were not hit by SARS were part of the discourse with the health officials, all the meetings that they went to, of what to do in a pandemic. So in a sense, they were mentally ready for it go to the United Kingdom that hasn't had a pandemic in in, in decades. And as a result, they framed it as the seasonal flu as opposed to SARS. Now, what that meant is that the UK chose a strategy of mitigation, where New Zealand chose a strategy of elimination. And therefore, their options were different. They perceived different options. By having different options, they could make different choices. By making different choices,
1: they could have different outcomes. So having the right frame can save lives. Exactly.
3: Definitely. I mean, let me let me add something. It's what is very nice, intriguing with New Zealand is that New Zealand is in between. It's, it's in Asia, but has a very, very strong link with the UK. And so they had both frames. So they were prime in both directions and choose the right one. And as you said, save life as a result and the economy for them as a result as well. In
0: 1962, the philosopher of science. Thomas Kuhn wrote his famous book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which I just literally happened to be reviewing this morning for an article I'm working on. He came up with the idea of scientific paradigms, which are then sometimes overthrown by a Copernicus or a Darwin who, who or an Einstein who comes up with a, a new paradigm. How does the concept of a paradigm, how does that differ from framing?
3: I mean, first it's really about science, right? So you're talking about shift in science. Framing is a mental model. So it's not just restricted to science, it's every every human decisions and actions. And in fact, a big part of our book is to show and try to convince the reader that, you know, if you know how to use your frame right and use them to do good counterfactuals, imagine alternative realities within that representations, it can be extremely, extremely powerful. So to, you know, in short, yes, there is an analogy and in many ways you can think of paradigm shift as reframing, but it's in a whole scientific community or claiming that this is in each one of us, in our brain, that's what we do all the time. And, and one of the
0: points y- you make is this whole idea of thinking outside the box, it's not it necessarily as useful as people believe. Why is that?
3: I mean, I would add it's hurtful. <laughs> I mean, it's it's it's. Uh, I mean, first there's research that show that if you try to prompt people to think outside the box, they are in fact less creative and they are less su- successful at finding solutions. And the the answer is very easy: we cannot think without a box. You need the way. You need constraints. You need ways to frame the problems, to start to think.
1: So you're saying think inside the box, but it
3: may be a different box. Exactly. Exactly. You understood it. Yes, exactly. And that's why you need to cherish your box and know how to use them. So, can
0: in the book, you actually give some sp- specific tools people can use to, to reframe or work within frames, and to use this concept productively whether in making business decisions or other parts of life what are some of those practical ways of of looking at a problem in terms of framing
2: great question so the first thing to do is to be aware of a frame that's pretty essential it's so foundational that it probably doesn't need to be said, but in fact, it absolutely does, because it is new for people to realize there is such a thing as a mental model, I'm in it, and I need to actually either stay within it or change the model that I have. Secondly, there's these three features of the of a frame of a mental model that one needs to be aware of, and that you can actually interact with and play with. The first one is causality, the second one is counterfactuals, and the third is constraints. So causality is pretty basic, the world operates to cause and effect. Counterfactuals are basically what-if questions, how the world might be, not what it is, but what it can be. That's a big difference than, say, computer systems, because, of course, AI needs to look at the data and pattern match, taking what is to understand what could be.
0: So if I'm in a business, I'm trying to make a decision, what would the kind of counterfactuals be that I would want to bring into the decision-making process?
2: Well, you'd want to prod yourself with lots of what-if questions. What would happen if this happened? What would happen if that happened? And the third C, of course, is constraints, because that's the interesting bit. You can modify those constraints, can loosen some and tighten others. And by doing so, you can actually take and adjust the frame and make it a better fit for the situation at hand.
1: Let's take an example from technology, Apple and Nokia. It's 2005, 2006 framing was a really big part of the huge shift in how we use cell phones. So Nokia
2: says we need to have a a mobile phone that will appeal to people. So does Apple, right? So they want to do the exact same thing and they've got the same technologies that are around. They simply assemble the technologies of others. So what Nokia has is the mental model of the telecom industry in which you have a dumb device and you have it as inexpensive as possible, and the center holds, which is to say, they actually, the telecom operator makes it simple, and by making it simple, that it defines the features of that phone. Apple does not have the telecom mental model. Their frame is the computing industry, in which devices are expensive, in which the user is in control, and they can add new features. It's fully extensible through software. Now we know what happened. The iPhone comes in and Nokia, from being the world's dominant handset maker in the period of about eight quarters, is teetering on complete irrelevance because of the mental model.
1: That's amazing. Um, Americans are used to the word framers through our constitution. And there was a time when democracies were unimaginable. The idea that people could actually govern themselves, I mean, that was unthinkable. And then in the new country, there was a way of thinking about government that was a new model, wasn't it? It absolutely was. And what's so interesting, one of the things I love best about writing
2: this book was plowing into colonial American history. I started off with this question. Did the colonists and the founding fathers use the term framers at the time, or was that a term that we then applied to them later? And so I looked at it very closely, and it turns out the idea of a frame was well established in the 1600s and 1700s because this was at the time where Thomas More was talking about utopias. And all these political thinkers were imagining, often through fiction, because they couldn't because of the censors, in fact, right, uh, and in essays, what would the world look like? What could we have instead? And it turns out at the time, they often referred to the frame of government. So the charter for Pennsylvania was the frame of government of the colony of Pennsylvania, the frame of government. And so indeed, they referred to the framers all the time. That was what the press was talking about, how they were going to frame the government. And of course, the Constitution was the second document. It wasn't the Articles of Confederation.
3: Articles of Confederation had a weak center. That had to change. And if I may, the the Constitution, any Constitution, but it's a beautiful example of a frame because you have the constraint. Jim, you wanted to know about constraint? That's what the Constitution does. But within this constraint, you can imagine many different possibilities, many ways of being America, as we're experiencing today in the U.S., We certainly are. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs.
1: And we're speaking with Francis de Veracourt and Kenneth Kukier. Before we go back to our interview, a quick word about another show in our Democracy Group podcast network. It's called Swamp Stories.
3: From slush funds in Congress and dark money to gerrymandering and foreign interference in our elections, the Swamp Stories podcast from Issue 1 shines a light on the swampiest practices in D.C. that repulse Democrats and Republicans alike. You can hear from reform leaders, elected officials, and experts from across the political spectrum to discuss the culture of cash and corruption in D.C. and how we can fix this broken system. Listen to Swamp Stories on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the show at swampstories.org.
2: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
0: Just before the break, we were talking about big data and the fear that a lot of people have in this country that computers and especially artificial intelligence will take over a lot of the functions that people do for work today and kind of make humans irrelevant in a lot of fields. You take a different view. In fact, at one point in the book, you say computers and
3: algorithms cannot frame. What did you mean by that? There are many reasons for why. A machine that can start framing, that is creating its own representation about the world. That's what we are talking about. Sooner or later, that machine is going to be able to represent itself. And here we are talking about consciousness, and then you're talking about strong AI, and I think we are far, 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 far away from that. Now, that being said, it is true that there is a risk that a lot of machine learning algorithms are are taking over a lot of our decisions, And if we do not focus on what makes us human special, we are going to lose a little bit too much to the machine. Let us focus on what makes us special. And what makes us special is we can go beyond the data using frame, the power of frame, one of the power frame, is to imagine reality that do not exist. Can speak to that,
1: this idea that as humans, we can imagine a different world or a different set of circumstances, and that this is something that's impossible for machines to do.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It is so essential. I mean, the the three features of a frame are exactly the things that computers are inept at. Uh, we think in causality. Machines do not understand causality. and If they are able to process it, it's because a human being has imposed it on it. Secondly is this counterfactual, these what-ifs. Conjuring up The what-if questions is an act of imagination. It's not something that computers do. As Francis has just said, computers and machine learning algorithms, they look at the data that they have to find patterns within that information. But humans invent their own information. They invent their own data through, in effect, thought experiments. They can actually go beyond the what is and imagine the what can be. Computers fundamentally cannot do that. But thirdly, we can impose constraints on it. We can put these wise constraints that say this, not that. And by doing so, we can shape our universe and our reality.
1: So why is it so important in your view to stress what makes us special as humans, as opposed to machines or even machines of the later 21st century? Look,
2: the machines that we're building are absolutely extraordinary. And the only way we're going to actually probably live on this earth and save our species is through artificial intelligence to do all the things that we can't do because they can do it better than us. But they're doing it better than us because we are putting our frames into the algorithm, into the way that they're processing. We're choosing what they do. They're choosing how they do it. If we do not trust our own abilities to be a framer we will not last long on this earth because our challenges are so immense. If we try to give it up to the machine, the machine can't do these things. We can. And the other project, of course, is to just deny it and say that, well, we can't do it. Humans are irrational. We make bad decisions. And that's not the right answer either because that way lies madness. It's populous and it's just reverting down to the grunts of beasts. Instead, we need to double down on what we do well and do well already, which is we frame issues. But the key is this. We can take this basic feature of cognition and transform it from a regular way of how we think to a tool we can deliberately use to improve our options, reach better decisions, get better outcomes.
0: Throughout the history of philosophy, there's been this tension between a kind of hyper rationalism on one side and this sort of emotional utopianism on the other side. You mentioned uh, the philosopher Rousseau in the book. But you're saying that in order to really do this framing thing, you do need to bring in some of that emotion, that moral sense, gut feeling, things that aren't necessarily going to be part of an algorithm and they're something very human. How do we strike that balance?
3: I mean, I... I don't think we're we are saying we need to bring the gut feelings. I think we're saying the third way. You know, there's there's the gut feeling approach. And then the so there's the Rousseau and Descartes. Sorry, I'm French, so I need to bring them both. We are in the right. middle. <laughs> so right. so we, we, we are for instance Sort of like we, Hegel. Yeah, okay. I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, beautiful. So we still have this creativity. We we advocate for the so-called imagination creativity, which maybe sounds more like the gut feelings aspect. But this creativity has to be well constrained, guided in a very specific way. And that's coming from the more Descartes rationalist approach. So this framing approach combined, in our view, the best of the two and uh, enable us to be so powerful imagining new solutions in a rational way to some extent.
1: You mentioned Martin Luther King and his I Have a Dream speech in 1963. That speech
3: dramatically reframed the way we thought about racism. I'm glad you're bringing Martin Luther King because, uh, I mean, this is a personal story. So if you humor me, I'll, I'll tell you. I learned English when I was 13 years old. And when I was 14, I had to learn his speech but I didn't listen, listen to his voice at the time. And I just had to read it. And I fell in love with America, with this guy, by reading his speech. So the, the emotional component is there. But what struck me is the way he was framing the, the, the problem. And that problem was racial inequality, injustice. The way at the time it was framed, it was more, it's us against them. So, you know, there's a nasty racist and us, the anti-racist. But the way Martin Luther King framed the same situation is totally different. It basically said that social inequalities, racial injustice is in fact a debt to society. Society has a debt towards those people that is on society to pay that debt. And this is a total shift of, of framing. And I found that very insightful. And yes, then the emotions start to kick in. So...
0: I think Richard and I are both struck by the optimistic message of what you're saying at a time when there's a lot to worry about and you don't brush that stuff under the rug in in your account. Do you feel like you're out of step with the, the mood of our time? I mean, we seem to be surrounded by a lot of pessimism.
2: Yeah, incredibly. I mean, I think that's one of the, if you will, quote unquote problems of this book. This book is intended to speak to people in a way that they've not been spoken to before, to understand something new. There's a nuance to it that doesn't ring with the current political social shtick. We are incredibly favorable and great embracers of artificial intelligence. We're not naysayers whatsoever, but we point out a shortcoming of artificial intelligence. We are trying to redefine liberalism through uh, cognitive science, but we are very uneasy with cancel culture and wokeness run amok. So this is a book that speaks to people on lots of different levels. And ultimately, what it is, is it's telling people something that they think they know and trivialize and says it's not trivial whatsoever. We have a power of mental models to make better decisions. And unless we get better at using this ability of framing, we will
1: not live long on this earth. Kenneth Couquier and Francis de Vericourt. thank you for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Thank you. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. Real pleasure. From our conversation about framing, we go to a recommendation. Jim, this week it's you.
0: Yeah, and it's not the latest guilty pleasure on Netflix or important book. It's actually a puzzle my wife and I have become kind of addicted to the New York Times pangram game that they post every day. If you haven't seen it, it's a a panel with seven letters on it, one in the middle that you have to use in every word. You try to figure out as many word combinations that use these seven letters and only these seven letters or any any subgroup of them, but usually it's around 100 or more words can be formed by the letters in the pangram and if you get them all they call that a pangram and so you get a gold star for that. So it's just a fun way to exercise your brain a little bit and sometimes I like to take a break from news and Twitter and everything else and just focus on that.
1: Intriguing. What's it called again? Pangram. And now to our conversation about framers. Jim, one thing I was struck by is not just that this is a passionate argument for considering the importance of framing, but also has political implications in that it's a rejection of dogma and looking at the world through a single lens.
0: Right. A dogma is a frame. And I think they tend to be dangerous frames for two reasons. First, they're oversimplifications of the world, but they also tend to apply a heavy moralistic interpretation. So, for example, if if you're a, a Trumper and you think anyone who's not a big Trump supporter is automatically bad, that's a frame that is both rationally and morally harmful. Or if you're a a real far-left progressive, and you think any opportunity to make money in business capitalism is inherently evil because people shouldn't be making money off of, say, inventing a new vaccine, you know, that's that's a frame that is powered by this strong moral intuition and can lead to just terrible, terrible policies. So that's why I love what Ken talked about, the importance of not trivializing this, of, of being able to have frames that embrace nuance and embrace the complexity of issues, even as in order to to think clearly and act, we do need to simplify somewhat, but we should beware oversimplification.
1: As someone who likes to frame arguments in terms of the positive, I like their embrace of the concept that big data could be a force for tremendous good, and that if we realize that as human beings, we've got the imagination, we've got the ability to create and see things in a different frame or a different reference that we can have control over machines, over artificial
0: intelligence. I agree, but it's not, does it just happen by itself? I mean, I, I think we've seen from the rise of social media and some of the unexpected dark sides of social media that sometimes these systems do take on a bit of a life of their own. And so we need to think clearly about how to make sure they're they're working for us and we're not working for them. So I think the book is optimistic, but they aren't Pollyannas about the challenges we face.
1: It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. This podcast is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. We also do media coaching. Uh, check us out at
0: DaviesContent.com. Can I get some of that media coaching? Richard, I, sometimes I think yes, I could use a little. Yes,
1: definitely. Shorter <laughs> questions. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.
0: A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers.